0: Ephesians chapter 2. As we look at this chapter, we have a, uh, a, an important transition to really the heart of the book, uh, of the book of Ephesians. Now, uh, again, I, I hate to depress you if you worked so hard to get here and you shoveled out your driveway and here you are and now we're going to talk about your dismal condition, all right? That's my title of the sermon this morning. <laughs> Aren't you glad you're here? But, but we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And don't forget the context. This is our thought flow as we jump into this uh, marvelous portion of Scripture. Recall the book of Ephesians can be pretty neatly divided in half. You have the first three chapters and then the final three chapters. And the first three chapters is all about doctrine, the believer's blessings in Christ. And we've subdivided that into kind of four major chunks. We looked at our possessions in Christ in that Adoration Hymn, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. We then looked at the prayer for enlightenment. We finished that, uh, not last week, because that was the, uh, the Christmas celebration last Sunday, but the week before that. We concluded our examination of, of this prayer for enlightenment that Paul prays on behalf of the Ephesian believers. But then once he gets to chapter 2, he starts looking at our position in Christ, our position in Christ. Now, we can further subdivide that idea of our position in Christ into two major units. And this is, again, we're, we're only going to look at the first three verses of the chapter here this morning. But we're going to see that Ephesians chapter 2, when it comes to describing our position in Christ, you have two really big ideas that essentially serve to divide the chapter in half. First, this this chapter is going to describe how we as believers in Christ, have been raised and seated on the throne. We've been raised and seated on the throne, and we'll talk about that in due time, but that's the first 10 verses of the chapter. The second section, or the second half of chapter 2, begins in verse 11, goes to verse 22, and it, it shares a lot of similar themes as the first half, but it's focusing not merely on us being raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, not only now, but then ultimately later, the eternal life that is granted to us, you know, being raised and seated on the throne, but it also describes us as being reconciled and set in the temple. There is this thing that God calls the church, and he uses, recall the the major metaphors throughout the book of Ephesians that he uses to describe the church. One of them is that we are the new temple, the temple of the living God. And we as believers in Christ have been reconciled with God and set. We have been positioned, placed in God's temple. And so this is really important for us to understand our position in Christ because it, it defines our identity in Christ. So what's interesting is, again, I mentioned this a moment ago just by a kind of brief comment, but one of the purposes of Ephesians is to help the church understand their identity in Christ. That's really the major thrust of the book at large is so that they would know their identity in Christ. Because don't forget the original context. Ephesians is a twin epistle with Colossians, but it's dealing with the same thing. Colossians is written to counter the Colossian heresy. And the heresy was really denying the person and work of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the deity of Christ. And so Colossians was written to combat that heresy. Well, Ephesians is written to inoculate the church at Ephesus against that coming heresy. And so Ephesians is going to talk much about the person and work of Christ and who we are in light of that, our identity in Christ. That's really one of the major thrusts or purposes to the book of Ephesians. Well, if we properly identify that as one of the main purposes of the book, then we recognize that chapter 2 is really at the heart of the book, that the thrust, the central thrust of the message that Paul wants us to get in Ephesians is really contained in chapter 2. Chapter 1 is leading up to it, very introductory. Chapter 2 is kind of the heart of the theology he wants us to understand and to grasp. Chapter 3, he's going to pray for us to have enablement for that. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's going to explain the implications of that in everyday living. But the core of who we are in Christ, that information is imparted to us in chapter 2. So Ephesians uh, chapter 2 is really the core or the heart of the book. But also, notice how it fits into the context of where we have just finished in chapter 1. I find this as an incredibly profound flow of thought. Namely, that after Paul begins by adoring God, right? That was chapter 1, really verses 1 to 14 or 2 to 14, where he's that hymn of adoration— after adoring God for his glorious redemption, he then prays for God to enlighten believers to this redemption. God help them understand. That's chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. We talked about that and finished that a couple of weeks ago. But now what Paul does in chapter 2 is he goes on and he goes about the task of teaching them about this redemption. So he praises God for that redemption. He prays that we would understand that redemption, and now he gets about the task of teaching it to us. In other words, as I like to say, Paul does not lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. You know what I'm saying? Rather, he prays that God would help us understand, and then he gets to work teaching us about what we need to know about this redemption. In other words, this gives to us, I think, a rather practical principle, namely that we are both to pray and participate in learning to understand and appreciate God's power, love, and his wisdom. We mentioned that again a couple of weeks ago as we looked at that prayer in chapter one, is that by that prayer for enlightenment, that's how we access that divine wisdom that we need in order to understand and appropriately apply God's word to our life. We need God's intervention. But we also need to get to work. And we need to learn and we need to read and study and think. And that's what Paul is doing. He says, I'm praying God help them understand, and now I'm going to start teaching them. Now, as he jumps into Ephesians chapter 2, no surprise if you've been with us for any length of time, but Ephesians chapter 2 is one more of those really long sentences that Paul loves so much, right? Paul is at his best in the book of Ephesians. He's writing some very elaborate sentences, uh, and he's used, remember, he's, he's coining new words, and he's just really stretching the limits of human language in order to try and communicate these thoughts to us. But Ephesians chapter one, or I'm sorry, chapter two, verse one through seven is all one long Greek sentence. Now, again, I find this helpful to try and plot this sentence. Before we read it, I'm gonna plot how, it lay, how it's laid out. In other words, I'm not going to whip out the whiteboard and do the whole, you know, high school sentence diagramming thing. Uh, But I am going to give you a quick diagram, if you will, in your mind of how this sentence is put together. Because if you understand that's all one big thought from chapter two, verse one to verse seven, then it helps you grasp what he's getting at. The sentence is all one long Greek sentence, but it informs us as to what God has done, to whom God has done it, and why God has done it. In other words, this process of redemption, what God has done in redeeming us, to whom God has done it, we as the recipients of God's redemption, and then why he's done it. Again, to the glory of his grace, that he might show forth his mercy in ages to come. That's verse seven. In other words, if you were to diagram this, do you remember this? All right, nobody roll your eyes, but if you were going, went back to high school where do you start diagramming a sentence? What's the first thing you got to find? you got to find the subject to the sentence. Who is the actor? Who is doing all of this? The subject of the sentence is God. But it doesn't show up till verse 4. Look at this. Let me just start by reading it. All right? It says verse one to three. This is our focus this morning, verse one to three, but let me just read it. He says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Notice, the subject of the sentence, the actor, who is doing all of this is verse 4. God is the one who is the subject of the sentence. But what is God doing? What are the verbs? There are three main verbs. Let's read them verse 5 and 6. All right, God, verse 4, says he, he's rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he's loved us. But then verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. There's your first verb. He has made us alive. He has quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. Verse six, he has raised us up together. There's your second verb. He has made us alive or quickened us together. He's raised us up together. And then thirdly, in verse six, he's made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. There's your three verbs, right? God, the sentence is all about God. What has God done? He has made you alive, raised you up, and seated you in the heavenlies. That's what he's done. And that's what redemption is all about. But then, all right, we'll see, we kind of skipped over it, but who is God doing this to? He's doing it to us. The direct object of the sentence, who is receiving the action? It's us. And that's contained in verses one through three. The direct object of the sentence, that is the recipients of God's actions. That's actually placed at the beginning of the sentence. That's verses one to three. That's what we're here to talk about this morning is our dismal condition. He describes us in three primary ways and how we are lost in our sin. But God, there's your subject, has done what? He's quickened us or made us alive, raised us up and seated us in the heavenlies. Why has God done this? Verse seven, here's your purpose clause. Why has God done this? Verse seven, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? So we see God, verse 4, the subject, what he's doing, the verbs, verses 5 and 6, to whom he's doing it, us who were dead in sin, etc. That's verses 1 to 3. Why is he doing it? Verse 7. Well, now that you are all expert Greek scholars, all right, and you understand the, th- the flow of this sentence, then I want us to go back and really focus on chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is what we're here to discuss this morning, is I want us to consider, to contemplate our dismal condition. In other words, what were we before Christ saved us? Or to state it another way, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Christ, then I, like I said, I hate you. You got out of bed and shoveled your sidewalk and slid to here and rodeoed just to get to church, and now I'm going to tell you how sinful and pagan you are. Okay, but that's what we're here to discuss: is your dismal condition, and these verses are going to describe this dismal condition of mankind apart from the grace of God. That if we are outside of Christ, if we are not believers in Christ. Paul says that you are described in these three ways. And this is how we're going to break down these verses. We're described in three ways. Number one, we are allured by this age. We're lost in our lust and we're condemned in our sin. Mankind, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, is allured by this age, lost in our lust and condemned in our sin. That is our condition without Christ. Let me reread those verses, and then we'll just take these three thoughts as we examine this section. All right, Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3. Let me reread it. He says, and you, and notice, depending on your translation, that hath he quickened is inserted there to try and help us out in, in, you know, English, but it's in the Greek, the subject doesn't actually, the subject verb doesn't show up till, you know, verse 4 and 5. But he says, and you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past. He says, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. So as we look at this, we're actually going to begin in verse 2, with that that description of how we are allured by this age. According to verse 2, we walked, we, apart from Christ, walked according to the course of this world. We followed after the spirit of this age. Now, this idea of walking according to is a very common biblical idiom. If you've read the Bible for any length of time, you're familiar with this, I'm sure. But to walk is a common idiom. It services first in the Old Testament But it's an idiom for one's conduct, one's lifestyle, one's life choices. And it really is profound. You know, I I think one of the first places, it's not the first, but one of the first places that really develops this idea of walking uh, as a lifestyle is Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, he tells the children of Israel to walk with God, to walk according to his ways, which is really interesting when you think about it, because Moses is at that moment leading that very people group through the wilderness. What do they do all day? They walk, right? <laughs> They're traveling. What he's saying, we he's using that as an idiom, an analogy for how we live life. And it's really profound when you think about it. Because walking as a as a word picture for life is appropriate and that it implies intention. You have to do something. It implies direction. You have to point somewhere, and then a destination, that if you keep going, you're going to arrive somewhere eventually. And that idea of a walk of life implies intention, direction, and destination. And it's very profound, and, and we could do a sermon within a sermon just looking at that, but because it's a very prolific biblical idiom. But that's what Paul is using when he says, when you, apart from Christ, walked, when you lived life, what were your intentions? What was your direction and what was your destination? Well, he describes that we once walked according to the whims of this present age. The Greek word there is eon. We get the English word eon from that, right? Isn't that really brilliant of me? (laughs) Where do we get the word eon? Well, it's from Greek. What's the word? It's eon. But anyways, it means an age, a, a, a segment of history. The age in which we live, the eon in which we live that Paul described as this present eon is meant to contrast the world to come. Look down at verse 7. We read it just a moment ago, but notice it says, why is God doing all of this? Why has he raised us, right? Uh, Quickened us, raised us, and seated us in the heavenlies? It says that, verse 7, in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In other words, according to verse seven, there is another age coming. Is this era of history the only era of history? No, there were many before. But is it the final era of history? No, because Jesus is coming back and he is going to start a whole new era of history. Do you remember? That's what we talked about back in chapter one. If you recall, chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians tells us in verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, Christ, right, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and are on earth, even in him. And it describes that that coming climax of human history where Jesus comes back and gathers all things together. It says, again, verse 21, same chapter, Ephesians 121, Says that Christ has been exalted. Remember this far above all principality and power and might, and dominion, and every name that is named. Not only in this world, eon, age, but also that which is to come. In other words, we there are multiple eras of history. I'm a his, I love history. I, I, I'm kind of a history buff, and I I enjoy, you know, even thinking of the hinges of history. Like in other words. You know, if you study history, they typically will segment them out. You have, you know, ancient history. You have classical era history. You have medieval history. You have, you know, then modern history. Well, what makes us segment those into different eras of history? Well, there are typically key events that happen, several of which most of, not always, but most often there are wars, right, that happen. But the, it, it's a hinge of history. It changes, like the fall of the Roman Empire, Like, that's a big deal. So when Rome crumbles and falls, that era of classical history, it's over. What now do we go into? Medieval history. The hinge point is the fall of the Roman Empire. Well, I love studying the hinges of history. But the coming hinge of history is the second coming of Christ. And that's what Paul wants us to realize. That's the coming eon. But this present eon is not characterized by Christ ruling on the throne. It's not. Rather, he says, this eon is, he describes it vastly differently. All right, now let me just, let me camp on that for just a second. And let's try and fill out this idea of what does he mean by this present eon, this present age in which we live? Well, this is a rather packed, and this deserves a sermon, but I'm just gonna give it to you in you know 10 minutes because you're tough and you can take it, but... The present, this present age or eon, what is it referring to? This is a pretty loaded definition, but it's one of my favorites. This present age consists of the collective sin, rebellion, philosophies, values, religions, and evil agendas of fallen humanity. That's what this age is all about. It's the collective sin, rebellion, philosophies, values, religions, and evil agendas of fallen humanity. But those values, religions, sin, and rebellion are going to be present and promoted, furthered, propagated via the major engines of culture. What are they? Education, economics, politics, media, and the arts. In other words, we could spend a lot of time unpacking that definition. But what this present evil age is that Paul's trying to describe is it's this collective evil of humanity that is propagated, promoted through all these various engines of culture and society. It's what's taught in our schools. Is godliness taught in our schools? that we are created by God in His image for His glory, right? That we're to live according to His standards, that we're sinful in and of ourselves, but we're saved by the grace of Christ, and that gives us meaning and purpose and joy. You love your neighbor as yourself because your neighbor's made in the image of God. Is that what's taught? No, we're taught that we're all one big cosmic accident. I'm a monkey, you're a monkey, Right? This is just one big monkey show. And so it doesn't really matter how I treat you because you're worthless, right? Well, that's what's taught in our schools. Well, that's great. Well, how about our economics, politics, media, arts? Is that any better? What values are being propagated? Oh, they're wicked, evil values. What religions are being propagated? We're told that Islam is a nice, wonderful, beauty, beautiful, happy religion, and Christianity is the big evil bad guy on, the, on human, you know, in human history. That's what you're fed in your schools and in your media. Have you ever read the Quran? Have you ever looked into Islam, right? Is Christianity the big evil of society? No. But what religions are being propagated by our world today? You see where I'm going with this? Like I said, this is a sermon in a sermon. Just to think about this present evil age. What is it? What are the agendas and the philosophies and the values and the religions that are being propagated? Well, it's not God and his ways. But what's interesting is that this text goes on that while this present age is a powerful force, I mean, if you just look at those things on their own, education, economics, politics, media, arts, that is powerful. That's amazingly powerful and profound. But according to our text, this present age, while as powerful as a force as it is, there is something more insidious at work. Just as we are carried along by the whims of this age, so too this age is carried along by the whims of the prince of the power of the air who works. The Greek word behind the word works is literally energizes. That's where we get our English word energy. Where, where does this present evil age get its energy? Where's, what's the fuel, the combustion that you know, pushes it forward, that propels all of this wickedness? What is it? Well, it's the prince of the power of the air who is working, literally energizing the children of disobedience. And that's a powerful phrase. The, the, the phrase children of disobedience, it's, it's again a Hebrew idiom. We see it throughout the scripture, Old and New Testament. But when, he, when it describes you as the child of, for instance, the sons of thunder, you remember that? James and John are called the sons of thunder. Does that mean that they were introspective and quiet individuals? No, no. It means that their characteristics were thunderous, right? Lord, call fire down from heaven and destroy these Samaritans. Well, that idea to be the son of thunder is describing a chief characteristic that is true about them. But when Paul here calls us the children of disobedience, he means that it is our very nature to disobey. Now, before you get lost in that and say, well, I'm not quite sure. I had Mormon missionaries in my household one time and they were trying to make this point that we were all born with a clean slate and that we were, we were perfect individuals. And they looked at my, at the time, I think it was uh, Christy, my oldest. She was like two. And they, and they said, look at her. Isn't she just a perfect, innocent little thing? And I said, stop right there. I'm like... <laughs> You have not been in my household for any length of time. You lost me, right? I mean, I am totally out of this wagon. But the whole point is, do we need to teach our children to, to disobey? Who said that? <laughs> Penelope, give, a, give us an amen. All right, that's, that's excellent. We don't need to t- teach our children to disobey. It is their nature to disobey. Boy, I just say we, we close in prayer and go home. That was, that was a perfect sermon ender right there. But that's our nature. I don't, I don't teach my children how to lie. I don't teach them how to disobey. They do it on their own, and so did we, right? Well, that's his point, is we are children of disobedience. It is our nature to disobey. But let's camp on that first phrase, the idea that this age is carried along by the whims of, Of the wicked one, or what he calls here the prince, the power of the air. Now, you're aware of this, but this is, of course, one of the many titles for Satan himself. This energizing aspect of Satan upon this age and the individual lives of the unredeemed is an ironic contrast when you think about it to what Paul says we, as believers in Christ, are energized by. Do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, he talks about the energizing work of God in the life of the believer via the Holy Spirit. We can back up to verses 13 and 14 of the same chapter. But back in Ephesians chapter 1, he mentioned that if we're believers in Christ, we've been given the Spirit of God. What is our energizing force that propels us in the right direction? It's the Spirit of God. But that Spirit of God that's working in us has a counterpart. That counterpart that is the wicked prince of the power of the air, the spirit, the spirit, it says, that works in the children of disobedience, that energizes the children of disobedience, it's Satan. Satan is the wicked counterpart who is energizing this evil age and pushing it on towards greater depths of depravity and destruction. And I think this is interesting that Paul here uses the primary title that is given to Satan... Back in the Gospel of John, namely, he is called the ruler of this world. And we won't go there for the sake of time, but in John 12, John 14, John 16, thrice in the Gospel of John, Satan is called the prince or the ruler of this world. In one passage, he's called the god of this world. The synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, call Satan the ruler of demons. In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 12, Mark 3, Luke 11... And this idea is well illustrated in our study of the book of Daniel. I know it was, it was a while back, but do you remember our study of the book of Daniel? In Daniel chapter 10, where you have the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece that are evil, angelic beings that are fighting Michael or this angel that was you know, uh, dispatched, Gabriel, and the messenger. In fact, the messenger in Daniel 10 is not named, is it? It's just a nameless angel that shows up to... to uh, Speak to Daniel, give him the vision. But he fought the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. These are evil angelic powers that are in some way, shape, or form associated with the nations, the empires of Persia and Greece. We talked about this a little bit at Men's Group, didn't we not? Just this last Wednesday. But the idea that Satan himself controls the nations of the world. In his temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, he promises to give Jesus the nations of the world And I don't think that was an empty promise. I think he could deliver on that promise. And I'd like to say, I wonder how many more, you know, other times throughout human history, other people have gotten that promise. I think of the Hitlers of history. And I think, man, I wonder if they didn't have a deal with the devil. It's an interesting prospect, but the reality is, Paul says, this age is dominated by, energized by, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is presently working, energizing the children of disobedience. And that word ruler, he's the ruler of this age, is fascinating. The the, world, the word in itself implies that Satan exercises authority over a realm. This is the same Greek word that is used in Luke chapter 23 and verse 7. And in that context, it's referring to Herod, The Herod, King Herod, that is ruling over a particular province. That in other words, it's a governmental word. That there is a system of organized authority beneath the rulership that and the headship of Satan. It implies that it is authority, he has authority over a realm that is highly organized. And it is aimed at opposing God and his people. He has a purpose, he has an agenda. And it's not friendly toward Christ or Christianity. And what's important is that by identifying this at this early point in the letter, when Paul here identifies Satan and his realm here in chapter 2, he's doing it early on in the letter, but it's actually preparing the readers for Paul's further discussion about these very subjects later. When we get to chapter 4, he says, "...give not place to the devil." When we get to chapter 6, he will talk about the armor of God and how it is that we stand against the wiles of the devil. In other words, we must realize that there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. There is such a thing as the God of this world, and he has marshaled his forces, a highly organized system to bring down Christ and Christianity, to attack God's people, to further his own agenda of wicked values and morals, etc., And so this is important for us to recognize, and we'll talk much more about this later. But again, fitting this into the original context, the Ephesians, the original readers of this letter, would be readily familiar with these ideas, because, once again, Ephesus was the center of spiritism and paganism for much of the ancient world. Many of the original readers would have participated in magical practices, wherein the notion of aerial spirits and powers was very common. They would have, this, this would have been second language to them. They would totally understand what Paul is talking about when he, he describes the prince of the power of the air, that idea of the aerial spirits, all this, this, and there were many pagan religions in Ephesus that had this idea associated with it, that they would go and they would offer sacrifices or, or have incantations or all these various ways to try and harness these spirits either to promote good in their lives, to ward off evil, or to, in some way, attack one of their enemies. So this idea of black magic was very common. And yet Paul says that this energy is very real, but it is simply the dark side. It comes from Satan himself. But Paul wants to take it a step further, that this satanically energized age has an ally that resides within us which is easily allured and entangled, namely, our own lust. Notice again, verse 2, he says, wherein in time past you walked, there's that idiom, we walked, we lived, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, that satanic spirit, that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation In times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Paul is telling us in this passage, he's insisting that within us, inside of us, that is our flesh, he calls it in verse 3, is a propensity to evil, what some scholars call a bentness to badness, an inclination toward iniquity. That, again, don't forget, we're children of disobedience. That our very nature is to disobey. This inclination toward iniquity or bentness to badness, this propensity to evil is even worse. It tells us that this inclination toward evil is worse and that it's, it's also an affection for evil. That's the basic idea behind the word lust. Lust. To lust means that I crave it, I want it, I desire it, I love that thing. And here's the the worst of it, is that, you know, you and I are, this, this love, this lust for this present evil age is such a powerful weapon for Satan because he doesn't have to try that hard to allure us. It's really easy for him because down deep, we actually love this world. Elsewhere, the apostle John will implore us in 1 John chapter two and verse 15 through 17. He says, love not the world neither the things that are in the world. Why? Because that is our basic nature, to love the world. And this is, again, we won't get off into it because we already have, but those are, those are counterpart ideas. When Paul talks about this present evil age, the course of this world, that's the same idea, but John calls it The world. All right it's the same basic idiom it's this present world in which we live the values religions etc that are being propagated by the engines of culture that idea is what john says is it's it's of that which is of the world is not of god they're diametrically opposed so he says don't love the world but why does he have to command us not to love the world because by nature we do love the world we love it a lot and this is so true when, and this is true in your own life. Just think about it for just a second. When you indulge in sin, any form of lust, it could be anger, explosive rage. It could be a secret sexual sin. It could be a love of juicy gossip. Fill in the blank. Insert your sin. When you perform that sin, why do we do it? Because we actually like it. We like the feeling that we get. There's a tantalizing pleasure that keeps us coming back. Why? Because deep down, our lust rages. And it's true of every one of us. And we must come to grips with the evil that is in our own hearts. And Paul says that really apart from Christ apart from that energizing work of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to counter that, to help us overcome that. And he'll talk about it much more in chapter four. When that lust goes unchecked, it leads to every sort of perversion imaginable. And he'll talk about that more in Ephesians chapter four. But he also labels it as deceitful lusts. It's a lust that we have, and yet... It's lying to us. It promises us satisfaction, meaning, purpose, joy, pleasure, utopia. But in reality, it's just lying to us. Because as soon as we indulge in that lust, and we engage in that sin, whatever it might be, we don't have peace, joy, happiness. We have a fleeting moment of pleasure, and then we have guilt. We have shame. We have bondage. And the cycle starts over. What a horrendous way to live. I think all of us can identify to that, with that to one degree or another. And Paul says, this is who you are. In fact, he goes so far to say, once again, not only that we're children of disobedience, but he uses the word, this is our nature. Look at verse 3 again. He says, among whom we also had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This word by nature is the same word Paul will use elsewhere in the book of Galatians, for instance, to talk about ethnicity, natural, physical descent, as if, you know, in that instance in Galatians 2, he's talking about Jews by birth, by nature, who we are at birth, Paul here uses that same word to describe our lustful longing for sin. He says that is our nature. What's interesting is that this was actually, uh, it has a very powerful contrast in Paul's own day and culture. For instance, if you study Ephesians' background and you look at the city of Ephesus and you look at some of the philosophies that they believed in in that day, you you will discover that one of the major philosophies that held sway in Ephesus was Stoicism, And the Stoics in Paul's day argued that one ought live in accordance to nature as a way of pleasing the gods. That was one of the basic tenets of Stoicism. Yet Paul insists that our natural inclination is actually in rebellion toward God, that if you just simply do what feels good, it will lead to sin, depravity, and destruction. That's what Paul is saying. And it's interesting that he's he's targeted he's saying this but it's it's the exact opposite of what many of these ephesian believers would have believed in before coming to christ they would have thought and by the way can i get back off into this for just a second go back to our public school system go back to the, the philosophies that are in our media etc our politics are founded upon these these ideas and these values It's this whole idea, and it's garbage coming right out of the Enlightenment of romanticism and some of these other uh, philosophies, but the belief that we by nature are good, that's what those Mormon missionaries were trying to teach me about my child, is that we are all born with a clean slate, that we're perfectly innocent, and it's our environment that ruins us. So at the end of the day, it's not my fault. I'm a victim. It's all your fault. So if I commit a crime, I need to arrest my neighbors, because it's their fault, right? That's where that philosophy leads. It's absurd, but that's the philosophy that much of our modern Western world is built upon. Back to nature, back to nature. We are inherently good. Let nature go and do its thing. No, 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 Paul says if we do that, it actually leads to destruction. Reality is we crave our own autonomy. We insist that we ought be the masters of our own fate, Thus, we want to define our own morality and frame our own destiny. That on our own, we crave this autonomy from God, this ability to set our own agenda. But, according to Paul, this sort of selfish autonomy is actually rebellion against God, and it inherits nothing but the wrath of God. Look at the end of verse 3, which circles us back to verse 1. Notice he says among whom, again, verse three, among whom we had our conversation in times past but the lust of our flesh, that our lust is what carried us along. It's that carrot dangling in front of us. We're always chasing this present evil-aged, energized by the devil. He says, and we were by nature, end of verse three, children of wrath, even as others. Now, I want to camp on that idea of children of wrath, Which links us back to verse one, where he says, You were you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. This idea of being condemned in our sin, destined for wrath, because you know, and dead in our sin, this idea is loaded. First, recognize in verse three, it reports that we're not merely children of disobedience. Right, that was up in verse uh, 2, that our very nature is to disobey. But because of that, we are also children of wrath. That because of our disobedience, this inherits the wrath of God. That is, our nature is to disobey. Therefore, we are, we are destined to receive the wrath of God. This disobedience that is described in verse 2, children of disobedience, is further elaborated upon by two more specific words given to us in verse 1, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, these two specific words, sin and trespass, we don't have the time to go through an extensive word study of both of these this morning, but these two words together form essentially an A to Z list of disobedience. Sin, for instance, is the word that really means a misstep, to miss the mark. Do you remember that? We talked about it before. But that is the basic idea behind that root greek word is to miss a misstep to to misfire to misaim to mess up but then the word trespass is on the other end of the sin spectrum it's the word that literally means to you know to cross the line to transgress to see the line and to vault over it to do our own thing it's a picture of absolute outright rebellion and evil so you take those two words together and it's, it's, it's a merism, right? When we say A to Z, right? And the idea is that it's from one end to the other and everything in between. So we are dead in sins and trespasses. Whether it's a small, seemingly insignificant misstep or miscalculation, mistake, all the way to outright rebellion, everything in between, that causes us spiritual deadness, and to be children of wrath, inheriting the wrath of God. Which is what this verse, these verses are telling us. Is that this sort of disobedience results in spiritual death, according to verse 1, and inherits God's wrath, according to verse 3. So what is this idea of spiritual death? In verse 1 it says, You were dead in trespasses and sins. This idea of spiritual death can refer to one of two things. I think it's, it's both of which are helpful. But spiritual death can refer first to, To the idea of present separation from God that results in a spiritual sort of indifference and unresponsiveness. In other words, it seems to be instructive in Genesis chapter two and verse 17 when God says that the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. But they ate the fruit. And did they physically die at that moment? No. Adam went on to live like 900 something years after that. So what does it mean that the day he ate of it, he died? Well, it tells you what that means in in chapter 3. Genesis 3, it says that they were exiled from the garden. That from that moment on, they were separated from God because of their sin. They were exiled from the presence of God because of their sin. And because of that separation from God, they are destined for death. Death's coming. But not only ultimate death is coming, that in the meantime... There's a sort of indifference and unresponsiveness that they have toward God. We still use idioms like this to this day. When when we say to somebody, you're dead to me, right, or I'm dead to the world, or something like that, the idea is that we're totally unresponsive, we're indifferent. So this is one way that you can take this phrase, that, that Paul is describing us, apart from Christ, as spiritually dead, that we're unresponsive to spiritual things, that we have an indifference towards God and eternal things. But I think the term spiritual death can secondly and all the more ultimately refer to future condemnation. In other words, the idea of being spiritually dead in sin is that it seems to be synonymous with the idea that Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36, and same thing in John chapter 5, that right now, if we are not believers in Christ, we, he says you are condemned already. The word condemned, that phrase, condemned already, means the verdict has already been passed. The death sentence is hanging over you. You're on death row. That's what that is referring to. That I'm not dead yet. I'm still alive and kicking. But if I'm outside of Christ, the verdict has already been passed. The decision has already been made. I'm condemned already, John three thirty six tells us. But when I trust in Christ, he says, Jesus in John 5, I pass from death to life. There's a new verdict that is passed by the judge of the universe toward those who are believers in Christ. Namely, we are no longer condemned by our sin. We're no longer destined for eternal death and damnation. Rather, we are granted life, eternal life, because of the personal work of Christ. So those ideas of spiritually dead can refer to a present, unresponsive, indifference sort of attitude, as well as an ultimate verdict of condemnation that's hanging over our head unless we trust in Christ. I think it's instructive for us that this idea of God's wrath that Paul is mentioning here in verse 3, it forms a pretty sharp, stark contrast to what we've already been studying we saw God's love being emphasized so clearly back in chapter 1 verses 4 to 6. We see it again at the end of this very sentence in Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about in verse 4 through 7, same thing. God's love is center stage. But what's so fascinating is that these two ideas of God's wrath and God's love are not opposites, they rather go together. God's wrath is in, in no way contradicts his love, but rather is vitally connected to his love. This is misunderstood by many and misrepresented by many more. But the idea is that love protects the object of its love. And so it appropriately shows wrath against those things that threaten the object of its love. In other words, for God to save his own, he must also destroy his enemies. Love and wrath go together. I love my children. I love my wife. Right? Proverbs says, That the jealousy of a husband is like a raging fire that you can't stop. Why is a husband, a loyal husband, have such fury? Well, it's when you touch the object of his love and affection. You attack his wife. You attack his family. His rage is going to come out. We get that. We can relate to that. That's the way God is. He loves But if you attack the object of his love, his wrath comes out. And God not only loves us, but who does he love supremely? Who is the beloved son? Jesus Christ. If that is the object of God, if that's the greatest object of God's love, Jesus Christ, and yet you look at God's beloved son and you say, eh, I think he deserved to die on that cross. I think he's totally worthless. As Hebrews says, you count the blood of his sacrifice as an unholy thing. That thing which God loves most in the entire universe, you have spit on it. You have ripped out the beard. You've put him to the cross. And God says, okay, wrath is coming out. Does that make sense? God's love and God's wrath are connected, and vitally so, appropriately so. Further, God's wrath is in no way capricious or unpredictable or spiteful as the anger evident in the stories of many of the deities of Greco-Roman paganism. In the Greco-Roman world, their gods also had wrath, but it was capricious. It was unpredictable. It was all over the place. You never quite knew what would make them angry and how long they'd be angry and if it was an appropriate, proportional, or unproportional response. But rather, the Bible describes God's wrath as deliberate, purposeful, and measured I love Jeremiah twenty-three and Jeremiah chapter thirty, both of which uses a phrase that it says God's wrath. It's describing God's wrath and His anger. It says that it will accomplish that which He purposes for it. That God's wrath is calculated and measured. It's not God flying off the handle, but it's God deliberately exercising holy anger against His enemies, and appropriately so. But according to our passage, according to Paul, God's wrath ultimately ends in spiritual death. Not only now, in a spiritual dead sort of sense, but also later. Death is the inevitable result of cutting ourselves off from the source of life. That's what Paul is telling us. So here's the reality. As we contemplate these three verses, the direct object of what God is doing, in other words, the recipients of God's loving grace and favor, What were we apart from Christ? What was our dismal condition? Allured by this age, lost in our lust, condemned in our sin. The point of all of this is really twofold. First, and I mentioned this at the beginning, but if you're here today, you might still be here in this condition. Perhaps you are still in your natural and sinful state. Perhaps you've never yet trusted Christ. If that is you here this morning, then the reality is that Paul is urging And me, by simply repeating what Paul's saying, I'm urging you to know your condition, see your need, and flee to Christ. Don't believe the lies of this present evil world that's telling you that everything's okay. Just go to sleep. Put your head on the pillow. You you don't have a care in the world. If you are apart from Christ, you have every reason to worry. He says, you have no hope in this world, he'll tell us in chapter 2, later on in the same chapter. We have no hope. We're without God, without hope in this world. In other words, you need to wake up and see the dire, dismal condition that you're in and flee to Christ. But perhaps you're here today, and you are a believer in Christ, and you're... Kind of scratching your head and wondering, why do we need to spend so much time in these three verses, especially after we piled our driveway and worked hard to get here, right? Well, here's the reality. If you're a believer in Christ here this morning, praise the Lord, but believers must learn to properly appraise the value and efficacy of God's love and grace. We have to gain perspective on how much God loves us and what God has done to save us. But here's the reality, we can only do that. We can only produce a proper appraisal when we see and sense the magnitude of our own sinfulness, rebellion, and enslavement. In other words, I'm never going to marvel at who God is and what he's done for me unless I see that massive, infinite gap that existed between me and God that the grace of God must fill the depths to which Christ came to rescue me, the sinful depravity and potential that is in my heart that ought cause us to be careful, to have watch care over our own souls because the reality is we have that lust within us that could so easily derail us. And if we don't understand our own propensity to depravity, If we don't understand the depths to which Christ came to save us from that, we will never understand or adore him for his love. At the end of this paragraph, when we get to it, verses 8 to 10 of this same chapter, Paul is going to tell us how we properly respond to the redemption that God has given to us. That we are to respond with gratitude, humility, and service. We'll talk about it more when we get there. But the reality is, this sort of gratitude, humility, and service that verses 8 to 10 are calling us for, that will never happen unless we properly understand what God did for us and in light of where we came from. In other words, we need to take a long, hard look at our past and where we came from and who we are apart from Christ. And it doesn't matter if you were saved at a young age or a late age. In Physical birth, by nature, he says, this is the way you are. And we have to square with that. And when we do so, we all the more wallow and revel in God's grace. So this is what I wanna do. Before we dismiss, and you have to go shovel the rest of your driveway, then I want to us to sing a quick song. And here's, I, I was kind of going back and forth on what song to sing, but I landed on At Calvary. We're gonna sing four verses, and I love how this song camps out on some of the ideas that we just you know expanded upon, but then it leads us to the cross. In other words, let me walk you through this real quick, and then I'll have you guys come up and lead it, all right? First verse, it says, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. In other words, we spent years in vanity and pride, not recognizing the glorious grace of Christ displayed On the cross. Chorus says, Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Second verse, By God's word at last my sin I'd learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. the, The author is describing that awakening that happens in his heart when he realized the condition of his soul as Paul described in our text this morning. I I trembled when I learned that I had spurned the law of God and I was guilty and the wrath of God was coming down upon me. Third verse. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Conversion. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Final verse. Notice how much Ephesians is packed into this fourth verse. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. That's chapter one, the plan of the Father. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. That's the Son, that's Christ coming to earth, fulfilling the plan of the Father, giving us God's grace. And then what we just talked about today. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span. Look at how far he came, how deep he went to rescue us from our sin. And he did it at Calvary. All right, so isn't it a great song? It's a great song. Sing like you think it's a great song. All right? Okay, come on up, you guys. Lead us in this, and then we'll be dismissed.